RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and we'll be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to David Allenson returning to the podcast and to Corey Gilbert Harriff for his debut on the podcast today. We are recording on 27th of June, the day after Glastonbury came to an end with the youngest and oldest ever headliners, and a week after the Supreme Court in the US overturned the infamous decision in Roe versus Wade. Today, we'll be talking about developments in the final salary or defined benefit transfer market with so much going on there. And we'll also be talking in a bit of depth about the government white paper impacting the future of audit and also the position of directors. But before we get into those two meaty topics, just a very quick update on other big developments since our last podcast. So first of all, we had the litigation issued against Woodford and Link, which is going to see the start of that litigation and a test potentially of the civil duties and liabilities of authorised corporate directors. We also saw the FCA issue plans to prevent phoenixing, in particular targeting advice firms that then phoenix from those firms into claims management companies. We also saw a series of court hearings involving quite well-known investments in global forestry with the prosecution of individuals involved with global forestry. We also have the ongoing litigation involving David Almas, the man behind Harlequin. So with that introduction, let's go to Corey, who is going to take us through the developments following the white paper in relation to audit reform. So Corey, first of all, welcome to the podcast. As I said, you're picking up the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy paper, Restoring Trust in Audit and Corporate Governance, which sounds quite dry, but hopefully will bring a bit of life to it. Um, But before we dive into the detail, can you just give listeners a brief background to how this came about and what the aims are of the government paper with these proposals? Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Yes, so the strategy paper itself is 200 pages long and includes a wide range of plans for audit and corporate governance within the UK. This new strategy is aimed at strengthening the UK audit and corporate government framework The strategy follows the responses to the government's white paper titled Restoring Trust in Audit and Corporate Governance, which was published in March last year. The white paper was originally commissioned to tackle the concerns that were arising around the UK's corporate reporting governance systems following some major and sudden corporate collapses within the UK. To aid in the preparation of the white paper, the government drew on three independent reviews. The Kingman Review, a review led by Sir John Kingman into the Financial Reporting Council, 
the Competitions and Markets Authority study of the statutory audit market, and finally, Sir Donald Bryden's review of the quality of the effectiveness of audit. The White Paper set out the government's plans for action, which are now immortalised in the strategy we are discussing today. As you said, Corey, it is a very long document and it's broadly split into eight areas and to name but a few. We've got director accountability, we've got a new regulator coming in with new enforcement powers, we've got changes to audit supervision, we've got changes to audit market itself. Um, As a result, from our perspective, we're going to see an impact for directors and officers insurance for professional indemnity insurance around audit and accountancy practices that conduct audits. And also, as I mentioned, for the audit market itself and how firms operate. So given the breadth of our focus, we'll be focusing in particular today on the directors and officers impact and also on audit regulation and potential risks coming out of that for the professional indemnity insurers behind audit. So let's take the regulatory changes first because they actually impact both the audit market and directors. So we have ARGA, like the cooker, and pies, like the thing you eat. So two acronyms. Can you talk listeners through what these are and what they mean in the context of the proposed regulatory changes? Yes. So unfortunately, there are two more acronyms that we need to add to our vocabulary. The first is the ARGA, which stands for Audit Reporting and Governance Authority. This is a new regulatory authority, which is set to replace the FRC, the Financial Reporting Council. ARGA's operational objective will focus on quality and competition, while also retaining the FRC's statutory duty to promote economic growth. Amongst taking on the powers and responsibilities of the FRC, ARGA will also take on a number of other responsibilities. ARGA's overarching objective will be to protect and promote the interests of investors and other users of corporate reporting and the wider public interest. Moving on to PIES, or Public Interest Entities, the government's proposal is to expand the scope of regulation to large private companies in recognition of the changing nature of the UK economy and the need for high standards of corporate governance in the most significant UK companies. This is where PIES come into the mix, as the government intends to treat large private companies with 750 or more employees and an initial turnover of 750 million plus as public interest entities or a pie. This is referred to as the 750-750 test, which will also cover entities listed on the Alternative Investment Market, AIM, and Limited Liability Partnerships, LLPs. However, some entities will not become pies by virtue of the 750-750 test, including public bodies and Lloyd's syndicates. The government has also clarified that those that now fall under the PIE definition will not be subject to the same audit requirements as existing PIEs. For example, those under the new definition will not be required to have an audit committee or to rotate auditors every 10 years. As I mentioned before, ARGA will be assuming the FRC's current powers. However, they will also be given new powers, which include the ability to investigate and, if necessary, sanction directors of PIES for breaches of their corporate reporting and audit-related duties and responsibilities, an adaptation of the FRC's duties to monitor developments in the PIE audit market, which will now extend to the whole statutory audit market, 
This extension of the FRC's powers will also allow Arga to require information relating to firms, audit, quality and firm level resilience, including insurance arrangements, risk management, internal controls and budgets. Arga will also be given appropriate powers to require audit firms to address any audit quality and resilience concerns identified and to take enforcement action against non-compliant firms who fail to comply with information requests. Arga will also be given powers similar to Section 166 Skilled Person Powers under FISMA, which is aimed at ensuring that an expert review of a company can be supplemented by a review of its auditor. This is to be available for all statutory orders. Now, like many regulators, Arga will be accountable to Parliament, with the intention that the government issues Arga with a remit letter at least once over each Parliament. The remit letter sets out the matters Arga should consider when exercising its policy-making functions. Arga will also be required to submit an annual report, which will include, amongst other things, a report on its regulatory activities. So as I said at the outset, the impacts on two large areas that we deal with, and it's probably best to first look at directors and officers. And you mentioned I will be able to take enforcement action and sanction directors of pies. So can you just talk us through the, the real impact in terms of the changes for directors and officers? Yes. Yeah, so the key changes for directors and officers are predominantly Arga's new powers, which will allow them to investigate and, if necessary, sanction directors of pies for breaches of their corporate reporting and audit-related duties. To clarify these duties, the government has asked Arga to provide guidance on what it reasonably expects of PI directors by way of compliance with their legal duties. Some of these duties include the new duty for directors to report on a company's internal controls and fraud prevention measures. For PIs, there will also be a requirement on directors to report on actions they have taken to prevent and detect fraud. Various other reporting requirements have also been proposed, such as the requirement to file a resilience statement whereby directors would be liable to the company for untrue or misleading information contained in that statement. The government has also invited Arga to consult on the clawback provisions under the UK Corporate Governance Code. This is expected to help in the clawback of remunerations from directors where there are serious director failings. This focus on director accountability has led some respondents to raise concerns around its impact on the price of directors and officers' insurance. In response to these concerns, the government has clarified that, due to Arga's remit and resources, only the most significant failings by directors will be considered. Therefore, it is hoped that these changes will not have a dramatic impact on the price of availability of insurance for directors of pies. So some perhaps scary new powers for Argo when it comes to directors. Uh, so going on now to, to audit, what changes are we going to see for audit supervision and regulation? Yes, so the government's aim here is for audit to become more trusted, more informative and therefore more valuable. Following the Bryden review, the government is also of the view that there needs to be a change of auditor mindset, judgment and knowledge. To achieve these changes, they have proposed that Arga implement changes to audit standards and guidance in place of implementing additional legislation. The FRC, in fact, published a paper on this just last week. Arga is also set to ensure that audit will help establish and maintain deserved confidence in a company. 
including confidence in its directors and the information they publish, such as financial statements. The decision on whether to develop a non-binding purpose statement for audit and its content has been left in the hands of the new regulator. Following strong feedback to proposals in the previous white paper, the government will leave the market to shape the development of an enhanced wider assurance services market. This essentially means that the market will be left to consider how audit will extend beyond financial statements to become more informative for users of audit. As a result, Argus powers will not go beyond the oversight of corporate audit. The government has also confirmed that they have no intention to establish a new professional body or implement regulatory oversight of a new corporate auditing framework at this time. They have also noted that they have no plans to introduce legislative changes regarding the assurances of alternative performance measures or key performance indicators. The government also expressed that while it was keen to see increased innovations and competition in the audit market, it is not minded to make legislative changes in regards to auditor liability at this time. In support of this decision, the paper refers to concerns around any reductions to liability having a perverse impact on outcomes in terms of audit accountability. With regards to fraud, the paper proposes that auditors will have to provide assurance on the director's reports on a company's controls and fraud prevention measures. Also within the white paper, the government considered that new requirements on audit committees will increase consistency and ensure better auditor appointments. In response to this, they have given Argo new powers to set minimum requirements of audit committees relating to the appointment and oversight of auditors, as well as powers to monitor compliance with the new requirements. However, the government did not go as far as giving Argo the power to appoint an independent observer on an audit committee. The FRC, and soon to be Argo, has been asked to consult stakeholders to identify ways to increase the usefulness of information published on audit quality reviews. The regulators have also been asked to look at non-legislative ways of improving the audit quality review process while being equipped with broader powers and functions that will allow it to publish the information necessary for it to be an effective regulator. These powers will allow the publication of audit quality reviews where consent has been withheld after a process of discussion with stakeholders. Now, the issue of legal professional privilege on certain documents was raised in the government's white paper. The obvious concern being that there would be certain documents required by the FRC or ARGA, which would come under the protection of legal professional privilege, which could restrict the regulator's operation. The government has not been able to provide any remedy to these concerns, but acknowledges the real challenges to finding a workable solution to the issue. So a whole host of changes that are going to impact how an audit is conducted and also some of the supervisory work of the FRC to soon to be ARGA around the issue of audit. As I mentioned at the outset, there's also an impact on the audit market itself. Um, so what we're going to see there, Corey, in terms of the new powers that ARGA is going to have? Yes, so those within the audit market will expect to see some changes for themselves as well. Uh, one of these changes comes in the form of a new proposed legislation, which will require UK incorporated FTSE 350 companies to appoint a challenger as a sole group auditor or appoint a challenger firm to conduct a meaningful proportion of its subsidiary auditors within a shared audit. However, 
The government does recognise that the scale and complexity of certain audits may make this difficult. Therefore, the requirements will be subject to an exemptions regime that Arga will operate. Here, Arga also gains more powers, including the power to operate a market share cap, either if there is a significant firm collapse or further intervention is required once managed share audit has had an opportunity to take effect. The government will also legislate to give Arga the power to require an operational separation of the largest firms. The regulator will also be equipped with powers to monitor the health of audit firms, including sufficient powers to address concerns around an audit firm's resilience. Finally, the government intends to seek power to make regulations to deliver full structural separation of audit and non-audit parts of a business if operational separation fails to yield an increase in audit scepticism, independence and quality. On the note of insurance for audit firms, there is no proposal for minimum insurance levels or capital requirements. So quite a lot going on also in the audit market itself, and perhaps we've already started to see the fallout with lots of stories around EY splitting out its audit business from its non-audit business, perhaps in light of pressure, but also perhaps in light of the proposals in the white paper. So the paper itself also goes beyond audit and directors. There are some interesting proposals for the broader oversight of the accountancy profession. The FRC is also responsible for the oversight of the actuarial markets. How that's going to be impacted by Arga is also in the white paper. And also some more broader company reporting requirements. So can you just give us a brief insight into those wider implications of the white paper? Yes, so there has been some interesting and significant proposals set out in the paper regarding the accountancy and actuarial professions. The first of these proposals is to introduce a new statutory regime for the oversight of the accountancy professional, which will include all relevant professional bodies and not only chartered bodies. This proposal will also expand the current enforcement regime to focus on cases where the activity undertaken by the member is related to matters within Argus general objectives and functions. This is said to be principally corporate reporting by PIES, which give rise to public interest concerns and the threshold for action against auditors is to be lowered from misconduct to breach of relevant requirements. Another proposal focused on the regulation of the actuarial profession, whereby Arga is set to gain statutory powers to oversee and regulate the actuarial profession, focusing primarily on individuals by reference to actuarial activities of public interest. This will include actuarial work undertaken by or for pies and will include large pension schemes and large funeral trusts. Arga will also set standards for technical actuarial work which will be legally binding. However, ethical standards will continue to be set by IFOA, the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Further powers will be given to ARGA, allowing them to request individuals undertaking public interest actuarial work to provide timely access to their work. This will be in response to a formal request by ARGA, and if not complied with, then ARGA can compel them to do so if necessary. So you may have noticed that these powers mirror Arga's powers for audit. The government has made it clear that the regulatory regime will be focused on individuals and will not work for entities direct. Finally, there are some proposed changes to corporate reporting, which may have an impact on both directors and audit firms. 
So the proposals in the white paper have no set timescale. And some, as you've mentioned, Corey, depend on legislation getting through Parliament. So we'll have to wait and see if that happens. But on the basis these proposals all go forward, what impact do you see for the directors and officers market? And what impact do you see for audit firms? Well, like you say, it may take some time before we see even some of these regulations coming into force. But it is obvious that the government is taking a hard line on directors and officers in recognition of some of the recent corporate failures. So the main impact on directors and officers is accountability. While it has always been the case that directors hold a great deal of accountability for the operation of a company, these regulations and changes seek to increase that accountability and require directors and officers to make their case before a problem is found. With regards to auditors, The market has been watching the publication of the white paper and the government's reaction to recent audit failures for some time in anticipation of more changes being implemented. Some may be relieved with the confirmation there will be no changes to auditor liability or insurance requirements and that the definition of pies is much narrower than that initially proposed. But most will be cautious of Argo's significantly expanded selection of powers, both for their clients and themselves. One impact on the audit market worth looking out for is the widening of the definition of pies and the impact this may have on many auditors' abilities to actually carry out audit work for a number of their clients. However, whether the changes close the perception gap between what the government want from an audit and what is able to deliver is a different question. Thank you, Corey. A lot to look forward to there in terms of changes that are coming in that I'm sure we'll cover on the podcast going forward. So now we turn to David and developments in the defined benefit or final salary transfer market. So, David, to kick us off, can you just talk us through what recent developments we've seen um, for DB transfers? Hi, Rachel. Yeah, there's a couple of things to talk about this month. But as you'll know, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of the FCA's proposed Section 404 redress scheme in respect of British Steel pension transfers. And Andrew Oberholzer discussed this issue in detail recently in episode 11 of this very podcast, and I don't want to tread on his toes too much. But in brief, the FCA published a consultation paper on this, and the consultation closes on the 30th of June. And we're waiting to see how the FCA responds to any submissions put into it. But there's a couple of points I'm particularly interested in seeing the response to. The first of those is the lack of any sort of opt-in process under the proposed review as a prerequisite to files actually being considered. And secondly, there's the interesting decision to use the Financial Ombudsman Service as effectively an arbiter of whether or not files are suitable. The FCA are intending to pass all files graded suitable, or at least so it seems, onto the Ombudsman so that they can check this. So you mentioned there, David, two particular concerns and interests you have with the 404. Can you just talk listeners through your particular concerns with these two issues? Absolutely. Starting with the lack of an opt-in process, this could lead to cover being unavailable for financial advice firms on any files that are ultimately deemed unsuitable and where redress is payable. And the reason for that is that if there isn't effectively a claim for policy purposes, then the policy might not respond because the insuring clause won't be triggered. And there's case law that helps establish in this area that opting into a review can count as a claim for policy purposes. And this is something which the FCA is well aware of. It's something which came up in the previous Section 404 review in respect of Arch Crew, where the FCA ultimately did back down and implement an opt-in 
process for that review. The second point that I really had an interest in under the consultation paper was the use of FOS to review files that were deemed suitable. Now, the FOS doesn't have any specific expertise with pension transfers as a starting point. And it seems slightly strange that they're going to be used to review gradings given to files by pension transfer specialists. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, a past business review such as the Section 404 scheme operates on the establishment of a legal liability. At least in theory, no redress should be payable unless such a liability has been established. And as you well know, Rachel, the FOS doesn't have to apply the law. They operate within a fair and reasonable jurisdiction, which is quite a separate thing. And it's quite difficult to see how those two things marry up. So some interesting thoughts there, David, on what the 404 may turn out to say. We'll just have to wait and see, as as you mentioned. Outside of the 404, there's also been some new developments in that the FCA has now published some FAQs in response to the consultation paper. So can you just tell listeners what's going on there? Absolutely. These were published on the 16th of June on the FCA's website in response to requests for further information on points raised within the consultation paper. It's going to be updated as and when appropriate. What are we seeing so far? The first thing that which seems to be causing a bit of consternation amongst people who are putting in responses is the use of the defined benefits advice assessment tool in general. That's um, the acronym for that is the DBAT. It's quite amusing. But anyway, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, what the DBAT is in essence is a spreadsheet and quite a simple one albeit accompanied by over 100 pages of instructions, which negates the simplicity just a little bit. But the intention behind this was so that everyone involved in this area could review pension transfer advice given to them from the consumer through to the financial advisor and through indeed to the FCA. It comprises a number of tabs. There's tabs on information collection, the suitability of the pension transfer and the suitability of the advice and one on causation. And once you've populated those tabs, it will give you a suggested rating for the advice. And in all likelihood, that's probably going to be unsuitable. But there are 12 questions on the pension transfer tab in particular, including whether or not the member was reliant on the income and retirement. And a negative response to any of those leads to a suggested rating of unsuitable. And the eagle-eyed amongst our listeners will have noticed that a new version of the DBAT was published along with the consultation paper, which contains some additional questions that weren't in the previous DBAT. Firstly, there's one about a member's age. So if the member was under 50, that will lead to a suggested rating of unsuitable. The FCA very much frowns on transfers when someone's a reasonable distance out from retirement and might not know their retirement objectives. Obviously, the counter to that is that steel workers are often in a hard physical job and will be looking at retirement ahead of people who are working in an office, for example. Now, even before the introduction of the next, everyone who's used it will know that it's very difficult to appease the DBAT. The new question now at number 12 has made it even harder, and that runs as follows. If the recommendation to transfer is unsuitable for the consumer's investment objectives, or for their financial situation, or for some other reason, then you will need to give a suggested rating of unsuitable. And that's incredibly broad. What exactly is or for some other reason? It gives a lot of discretion to the reviewer here. And this replaces a question in the original DBAT, which asked whether or not the advisor recommended that the client retains the benefits within the scheme when a transfer appeared to be more suitable and in the client's best interests. 
So effectively, they've taken a question which could lead to a finding of unsuitability if you should have advised a transfer but didn't, with a question which is looking for some other reason to find the advice unsuitable, which seems very unfair. So is it these issues with the DBAT and the changes between the versions of the DBAT that's prompted the FCA to publish the FAQs, David? I think that is potentially the case. I try to separate what my concerns are with things like the DBAT from what everyone else might think, because I'm quite cynical. But I do think that this is at least part of it. It's concerns from the advisory community who are expert in this area with the use of something like the DBAT to assess the advice that was given. There's some other areas that are covered by the FAQs. Uh, one that came up was what training was given to users of the DBAT. And the answer is actually quite a lot, surprisingly. There are training packs that were produced and nine short videos are available to watch on the website. The FCA has also confirmed that no qualifications are needed for someone to actually use the DBAT. But the FCA's assessors who are using this for file reviews do have to have a PTS qualification, it's pension transfer specialism, and that should at least give some assurance that this is being done properly. The FCA has also confirmed that out of the 365 sample files that they reviewed and discussed in the consultation paper, 268 of these were reviewed using the DBAT, with the remaining 97 reviewed using what was effectively the DBAT's predecessor, which was the Investment Advice Assessment Tool, which um, doesn't really lead to a very good acronym, but it's the IAAT. Anyway, one interesting point to note is that under the consultation paper, a person holding an SMF 16 function, which is compliance and oversight, will need to sign an attestation confirming that the DBAT has been completed correctly. And that makes it a bit clearer why the uh, FAQs are dealing with these kind of questions because of the concerns that people might have about completing the DBAT signing that attestation and making sure it's accurate in circumstances where it does look like arguably the questions are set up so that the advice will ultimately fail. Again, potentially my cynicism. Quite a lot to unpack there, David. Is there anything else going on with the 404 and the DBAT? There is another thing that comes through on the FAQs, and that's about the assessments of suitability for those 365 sample files that I mentioned earlier. Now, the importance of this is that these form the basis of whether or not the legal test for implementing a redress scheme has been met. And that's whether or not there was a widespread or regular failing by firms to comply with requirements applicable to the carrying on of a regulated activity. Now, the FAQ stressed the robustness of the FCA's quality assurance process, and all unsuitable files were apparently quality assured, along with about 20% of the suitable files. The DBATs were also completed by a third-party firm rather than the FCA, and I can't imagine that was cheap. And it always seems strange to me that the FCA will hire in a compliance consultant to complete these reviews and then ask them to use their very prescriptive spreadsheet to actually assess the advice rather than looking at it in the round. But again, perhaps that's just me. The FCA also states that they didn't review the subsequent investment advice in all 365 cases. There were various reasons for this. There might have been insufficient information. The pension transfer specialist may not have actually advised on the receiving product. And they also stated that in general terms, the pension transfer rather than the investment advice was their primary concern. But in 257 cases, they did in fact review this, and it was only found to be unsuitable in 44 cases, which is something. The FAQs also go into the weighting of the files, Rachel, and I've quoted what they've said about this because I don't fully understand it myself, not being a statistical person so much. But this is the process of applying weights 
in a statistical way to readjust or rebalance a sample so as to be reflective of the population from which the sample was drawn. Now, for those who are interested and understand statistics better than I do, the data set has been published on the FCA's website along with the FAQs. So please take a look at that if you're interested. So outside of the Section 404, the FAQs and the DBAT, are there any other developments to discuss this month, David, in relation to final salary transfers? There is indeed, Rachel. There's some news on enforcement this month, which doesn't just concern defined benefit pensions. It also involves some of our other favourite things, such as self-invested personal pensions, unregulated introducers and unregulated products. I wanted to specifically discuss an upper tribunal ruling in which five directors of three advice firms were fined a collective total of £1 million. Now, this was Andrew Page and Thomas Ward of Financial Page Limited, Aidan Henderson of Henderson Carter Associates, and Robert Ward and Tristan Freer of Bankhouse Investment Management. Now, they were found by the upper tribunal to have failed to act with integrity and to have acted dishonestly or recklessly. Now, the fine was originally handed down by the FCA in 2019 for these individuals' roles in involving around 2,000 retail customers to switch or transfer pensions to SIPs and to invest in high-risk, unregulated products. This led to the collapse of the three firms and to the FSCS, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, paying out around 50 million in compensation. The business model that was being followed by these firms was created by an unregulated introducer effectively called Hennessy Jones. They also had undisclosed interests in a number of the investments that were ultimately held in the SIPs. Specifically, these were bonds and loan notes held within a protected cell of IGO Holdings PCC, a protected cell company, and I hope I'm pronouncing IGO correctly. Anyway, the protected cell company was incorporated in Mauritius and a large number of the SIPs invested in this following the transfer and switches. Around 76.5 million was invested in this fund and in 2015, the FCA took notice and that's when they first started looking at this. As well as the business model effectively not being in clients' best interests, it was alleged that the advisors had been giving advice on pension transfers without the necessary permissions from the FCA, thus breaching principle one uh, to act with integrity and section 20 of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. The advisors, however, challenged the decision that was handed down in 2019 and it went to the upper tribunal, which perhaps unsurprisingly has upheld the original decision. The tribunal opined that the liabilities resulting from the advice to invest in high-risk, non-standard SIPs had been the biggest driver of the FSCS levy since 2015, which I think probably matches up with our experience in this area. They also maintained that the investments made in this case, the FSCS's compensation cap, have resulted in many consumers failing to receive the full level of compensation they deserve. Now, in terms of context, it's important to look at this and see that it's not just a case where bad advice was given, where someone perhaps got it wrong and put an investor into something they shouldn't have been in. It looks very much like the whole process here was designed without customers' interests really being considered, and it was more concerned with remuneration for the advisors and for Hennessy Jones. Anyway, this is distinguishable from simply getting something wrong. I think the lesson to take from this is that it's incumbent on advisors to make sure they're dealing with reputable third parties who fully disclose their interests 
to make sure they have all of the relevant permissions and finally in line with the FCA's consumer duty to put their clients at the heart of their business and to put their interests first beyond those of the firm. It's quite a statement to end there with David um, particularly with the consumer duty coming in next year in, in April 2023. You almost also had me singing from the sound of music with those are a few of my favorite things which is quite an interesting way to, to finish the podcast. So thank you to David and thank you to Corey and thank you as well for listening. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.